Glad to see you this morning. Hope you have your Bible and that you turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, today, we're going to finish out our study of Revelation. This study has occupied our time and our attention for a little over a year now. I really thought that this study was going to take us much longer than that. Um, and, and part of why I thought that was because of my understanding of apocalyptic literature and how that understanding was minimal as we started this study. In the introduction to this study, I said to you, let's go on this journey together. Let's be discovering Revelation together. Let's think it through together. I'll be learning, you will be learning, and we will be learning together. And, and I think that really truly has been the case as we've studied, even as we understand how to approach a book like this. Like, for instance, you know, when we're looking at an epistle, if we're looking at maybe one of Paul's letters to the churches, or if we're looking at a narrative like Matthew's gospel that we're studying on Sunday nights, it's really easy for us to look at very small sections at a time. And in those cases, when I'm faced with the decision to cover more verses or less verses on any given week, I always choose less. Like, I always choose the smaller section to look at it really closely, but... With apocalyptic literature like Revelation, because of the visual nature of it, the opposite approach is usually best. It's usually best to cover more verses than less, to get a feel for the broad, sweeping vision that is unveiled, to get a big picture look at the text, if you will, rather than dragging out our microscope like we usually do to examine very small parts. So we've been able to rock through Revelation in just a little over a year instead of the three years that I thought it was going to take. Honestly, when I, when I preached the, the introductory message to Revelation, I thought three years is about what, what it'll take to get us through, and it only took us a year. So amen to that, right? Yeah. As I told you last week, uh, we're going to pull back on the stick today and gain some altitude uh, as we try to get a look at the whole book today, not just a small section, not even just one vision in the book, but the book as a whole. And we're going to try to think through some big ideas that we really want to walk away with from this study. So, some big ideas that we can take home uh, and, and enact in our everyday lives. And this may be disappointing to some of you. And in fact, I think this whole study has been disappointing to some of you. Um, some of you came into our study of Revelation with this burning curiosity about the Antichrist, uh, about the rapture, about the timing of these end times events, about the mark of the beast. You had these expectations that you wanted to hear me name names. You wanted to hear me or us from the pulpit call out current events as fulfillments of the images that we read about in Revelation. Uh, you wanted us to give you a concrete timeline for the return of Christ. And we just haven't done that. Um, we've tried to approach Revelation uh, following the advice of Daryl W. Johnson, who says Revelation is not a crystal ball. It's not a crystal ball that just foretells the future. Uh, it's not just an outline of future events. Rather, it's a discipleship manual. It really is a discipleship manual that helps us live as followers of Jesus, especially during difficult times. In fact, that little bit of advice, don't see Revelation as a crystal ball, see it as a discipleship manual, that concept may be a great place for us to start today. The question that we want to be considering as we wrap up this study is not well, what's happening next. It is not, well, what do, I, what do I make of these events that I'm reading about on the internet or watching on the news? 
the question that we want to wrestle with today as we wrap up is not, who is the beast? Who is the Antichrist? The question that we want to wrestle with today is not, what is the mark of the beast? The question that I want us to wrestle with today as we leave this study is, how now shall we live? How now shall we live? Having seen these things and heard these things, how should we live our lives? That's the question that we talked about Tuesday in preparation for today. This is the question that gets to the pastoral tone of the whole book. Remember, John is writing these things. This revelation is given to John for the churches. And he's writing these things to the churches of Asia Minor in order to help them. Revelation was never intended just to fill up the minds of the followers of Jesus with information. It was never given to cause them to speculate about the things that were happening around them. Revelation was given and intended to change the way those people lived, particularly to help them live through difficult and dark days. And I am totally convinced if that's what it was for them, if that's what it was intended to be for them, a help for dark days, then that is exactly what's intended for us. That's how we should receive it well, as well, as a, as a discipleship manual to help us live by faith in the midst of very difficult times. And so that's what we want to consider today. So let's pray together before we consider about five things um, in answer to the question, how now shall we live? Let's pray together. Father, we are super thankful. As, as we look back on the last year or so, uh, in the midst of difficult times, you've brought us to this study for a reason. You have shown us things for a reason. You have taught us things for a reason. And that reason is not to tease our curiosity. It's not to build in us a sense of speculation. It's to teach us how to live, how to worship, how to serve, how to endure, how to persevere in the midst of dark days. So we pray even now as we review this book that you will drive those points home to us today, that we'll be able to walk away with some life-changing truths that will be helpful for us tomorrow, that will be helpful for us next week and next year as we continue to walk faithfully with you in the midst of this broken world. And God, we long for the renewal of this broken world. We pray, even in light of these things, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We, we don't long for the good old days. We, we, don't, we don't long for things to return back to normal for, before pre-COVID. We long for the renewal of it all. We long for the new heavens and new earth. We long for the new Jerusalem. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I pray in your name. Amen. All right, so five answers to the question, how now shall we live? Number one, we should live with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We should live in light of revelation with our eyes firmly fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a proper focus when we consider revelation. I want to remind you what the book of Revelation is all about. It is all about Jesus Christ. In fact, look at chapter 1, verse 1, part A. Like the very beginning of the book. Look at what it says. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the mark of the beast. It's not the revelation of the beast. It's not the revelation of the dragon or the prostitute. It's not the revelation of the 144,000. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we want to have a proper focus when we consider Revelation, and we want to live every day of our life, even when we're not studying Revelation, with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And so my question for you is, are you focused on the Lamb? 
Are you focused on the Lamb of God? There is an old gospel song that says, I want to know everything about that Lamb. And Revelation, our study of Revelation, has helped give us a greater clarity about who Jesus is than if we just studied the Gospels of of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we just studied the New Testament Gospels, we would get a picture of Jesus Christ, but Revelation fills in some of the gaps of who Jesus is. We get a picture of mighty, powerful, conquering king in Revelation that we don't necessarily see in the Gospels when Jesus rides in on a donkey. In Revelation, we see Jesus ride in on a white horse with a sword that comes out of his mouth. And so Revelation helps us know about the Lamb. It helps us know more about the Lamb. And our lives should be given to knowing everything about that Lamb. Revelation also teaches us that that Lamb is coming quickly. Jesus is coming quickly. And so that when that day comes, we will all live in subjection to him. But until that day comes, we want to live in subjection to him now, right? We, we don't want to... We don't want to wait till then to live in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to live in subjection to him even now. We want to live under his lordship even now. We should live with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? How do we do this from day to day? As we leave our study of Revelation, we move on to other things. How do we live with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, simply put, we do that through individual and corporate spiritual disciplines. How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus all the time? We read our Bibles. We study our Bibles. We memorize and meditate on the scriptures. How do we keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ? We spend time in prayer, regularly in prayer, privately and corporately. I think one of of the great things we do as a church to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ is we meet in the middle of the week to spend time before him in prayer together. Uniting our hearts and our minds in prayer together to him. How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? We fast. We gather together for worship. We gather together for fellowship. We serve together. Um, We've got a group of 15 or so people from First Baptist Harrisburg that are headed to Louisiana next week, uh, this coming weekend. And uh, they're going to serve. And that is a way we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. You're going to serve in his strength, not in your own. We serve, and all of those things are ways that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. So I'm talking here about growth in sanctification. I'm talking here about growth in godliness throughout our lives with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We don't want to be people who take Jesus on into our lives as a ticket out of hell and into heaven. We want to become true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be real followers of Jesus Christ. So how now shall we live? We shall live our lives with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not distracted by a million other things, but with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, we should live with a constant motivation to worship. We should live with a constant motivation to worship. Look at chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This is the first glimpse that John gets of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. That is the first glimpse that John gets of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he do? He falls down like a dead man in front of him. Falls down like a dead man in worship unto the Lord. It's the first of many examples of that. These encounters with Jesus that lead to worship, we should live with a constant motivation to worship. And so my question is, are we stirred up to worship now? Are we stirred up to worship now because of what we have seen and what we know of Jesus through our study of Revelation? I don't want us just to be content to do it then when we see him face to face. One of the things we're going to look at as we close out today are all these scenes of worship in the book. And, and, and those scenes seem to be in the future to us in many ways. This seems to be a day that is coming for us, a future experience for us as his people. But I don't want us to say, yeah, I'll do that then. Yeah, I will worship Jesus then. When, when we get there, I'll worship him. But in the meantime, I'm going to check my phone for Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm going I'm to be distracted by what I'm going to have for lunch or something like that. I don't want us to be content. I don't want us to be content to worship him then and not be inspired to worship him now. Our worship must be a present tense experience, not just a future tense expectation. Our worship must be a present tense experience, not a future tense expectation. And I want us to consider our time together in this room as practice for eternity in glory. We get to practice singing praises to the Lamb. We get to practice joining our voices together in one mighty voice. It's like the sound of rushing water and singing praises to him. We'll talk about this more at the end of the day, but worship is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And we see some great examples of the contagious and loud worship that happens in heaven. And we long in our hearts to be part of that heavenly multitude. But that longing should also mark our lives here and now especially when we're gathered together like this. This is a little taste of that which is to come. And so when we are together in worship, let's be encouraging one another. Let's be encouraging one another in the process even now, knowing that our attitude, our participation, all of these things that we're a part of now impact the people that are around us. And so let's get caught up. Let's get caught up in that kind of experience we read about in the book where one group says a thing and then another group says, amen, that's right, and they take it up a notch. And then another group says, oh, I'm with them. Let's worship him together. Let's be a part of that where somebody gets excited about the Lord Jesus Christ and everybody around them joins in the delight. That's what we want to be a part of. And you can either be an asset to the other people around you in worship or a liability to them. You can either be stirring them up to worship or you can be pouring cold water on it. And you can really pour cold water on it pretty easily. With a scowl, with a frown, with a distracted, checked out, blinked out look. You're either an asset to the people around you in worship or you're a liability. Let's be assets. Let's be helpful to one another, stirring one another up to worship. 
We should live with a constant motivation to worship. That's number two. Number three, how now shall we live? We should live and love this world less as we long for the Lord more. We should love this world less and long for the Lord more. We should see this place, this world, as less and less of our home and less and less our hope and long for the Lord more and more every day. We should come to see this place as only temporary, this life as just a vapor, and the Lord and his eternal glory as our ultimate eternal home. Pastor Dylan, when we were talking about this this week, says, if I could rewind the day, what would it show that I love? If, if I could rewind the day, what would it prove that I love? If I could rewind the day, what would it demonstrate is my hope and my joy? What about yesterday for you? If you could rewind the day yesterday and just review it, what would it prove that you love the most? And, and I'm not saying, well, did you just spend all day with your nose in the Bible? That would, that would be great if you did. Like, that's a good way to spend your Saturday with your nose in, in the book or your face on the ground in prayer. That would be great. But even if you watched a football game or you went on a hike or you did something in the garden or something like that, there is a way to do all those things that are not idolatrous but are actually worship to the Lord. You can say, oh, God, you are good to give us these things to delight in. Oh, God, you are good to provide us this world to live in. We look around and we see beauty uh, all around us. And you made all of these things. And so we praise you for these things. Oh, God, you have made chocolate cake. And I will enjoy this chocolate cake unto your glory. There's a way to live like that where your focus is clearly on him. And you are worshiping him and delighting in him. And your hope is in him. And you know that he is, he is everything to you. And there's a way to do all of those things that are ugly idolatrous, worshiping those things as an end in themselves, seeing those things as your joy and not the Lord as your joy. So if you could rewind the day, what would it show? We want to live in awestruck wonder. Even in the ordinary things of this life, we want to live with a sense of awestruck wonder, glorifying God, whatever we are a part of. I told you that the book of Revelation is a book of two cities. It's a book of two women. It's a book of two feasts. It's a tale of two cities, the New Jerusalem or Babylon. It's a tale of two women, the bride and the harlot. It's a tale of two feasts, the wedding feast and the slaughter that the birds will enjoy. And the question that we've been asking every step of the way is, to which do you belong? Where's your home? New Jerusalem or Babylon? Who are you identified with, the bride or the harlot? To whom do you belong? This world or the Lord? Are you sealed by God? Not have you avoided the mark of the beast, but do you have the seal of the living God on your forehead? Is there clear indication in your life that you belong to the new Jerusalem, that you belong to the bride, that you have a seat at the wedding feast? Or is your life marked by this world? Is your life marked by love of the things of this world? How should we live? We should live so that we love this world less and long for the Lord Jesus more. That's number three. Number four, we should live with a readiness to endure trouble, tribulation, and persecution. We should live with a readiness to endure trouble, tribulation, and persecution. The question that we want to ask ourselves in light of Revelation is, will we stand if the heat really gets turned up? 
Will we overcome? Are we ready to endure? Or are we simply looking for a way of escape? I told you early on in our study that I do not think Revelation teaches that the church will be removed before the tribulation. Rather, that the church will endure tribulation and will overcome by faith. Now, with humility, I want to say I may be wrong about that. And if I am wrong about that, great, I'll be fine with that. Pastorally, though, it seems the best approach is to prepare you to endure intense heat and then be unexpectedly delivered than to promise you deliverance and you be left to endure intense heat unexpectedly. Pastorally, it seems helpful to be prepared to endure, right? And historically, when you look at the life of the church over the last 2,000 years, it is a history of persecution and tribulation. And we have not seen once the Lord Jesus take his people out of that. We've not seen him take his people out of suffering and out of persecution. What we have seen him do over and over and over again is watch him. We've seen him walk with them through the persecution, through the tribulation. And they have walked through it by faith. We have said multiple times in our study of Revelation that trouble is coming. And trouble is here. Trouble is already here right now. So what do we do? We endure. We persevere. We overcome. We hold fast by faith. Number four, we live with a readiness to endure trouble, tribulation, and persecution. As Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you. Don't be surprised at the trouble that comes among you. But know that you walk with Jesus through that pain. And number five, we should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. We should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. In Revelation, what we see is a global kingdom. Over and over and over again, we see that there are men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It is a global kingdom, and that global kingdom assumes and requires a global mission. How will they be saved by faith in the Lamb if they've never heard about the Lamb? How will they be saved through his sacrifice if they've never heard about his sacrifice for them? Never heard about their need for that sacrifice because of their sin and God's holiness. The global kingdom demands a global mission. This really comes from Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13, where God's word says, For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we love that verse, right? And we say, amen. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he goes on, he says, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. We should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. Those glorious throne room scenes lay a burden upon us to pray. It's a first step when Jesus invites his disciples into the massive harvest. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest. Those throne room scenes of every tribe and tongue and people and nation compel us to pray. Those throne room scenes and the global mission of God compel us to give. 
Man, I, I, I think I said this on a Sunday morning. Maybe I said it on Sunday night or Wednesday night. I am really excited for Lottie Moon season to come up because I cannot wait to tell you where we already are in Lottie Moon giving this year. It is absolutely outrageous and exciting and encouraging. So you're, you're going to have to stay tuned till the end of November to really hear about that. But man, we are excited about the people at First Baptist Church's faithful giving to the global mission of God through Lottie Moon Christmas offering. These glorious throne room scenes compel us to pray, they compel us to give, and they compel us to go to the nations. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? And friends, First Baptist Church stands ready to send. We stand ready to send you and your family out to the ends of the earth to tell those who have never heard that Jesus saves, that Jesus alone saves. These glorious throne room scenes lay a burden on us to pray, to give, and to go. In fact, our own International Mission Board, the sending agency of the Southern Baptist Convention, uses Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 as its vision statement. Turn over there. Revelation chapter 7. This is, this is the vision of the IMB. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. That's the vision, right? A multitude that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. My question for you today is, what's your part in that? What's your part in seeing that vision come to pass? As we've studied Revelation, we should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. Because we know, we know what the end looks like for the believer and for the unbeliever. We know what the end looks like for the believer. We will see his face, right? He will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. There'll be no more sickness, no more pain, and no more death, no more darkness even. We know what the end looks like for the believer. And we know what the end looks like for the unbeliever. The lake of fire judgment and wrath. We know what the end is for the believer and the unbeliever, and this should motivate us with compassion. Compassion like we see in Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, when it says in verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at the people in their lostness, and he had compassion on them because they were distressed And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Friends, we have read the book, and so we should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. We have read the book, and we have seen that there will be a multitude that no one can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the throne, singing together about worthy is the Lamb. And that should destroy tribalism within the church. That vision of what the end looks like should break down all the things that we fight about on a regular basis. The gospel triumphs over every division that would keep us separated from other believers in Jesus. Pastor Dylan said, It is true, we have more in common with our Kurdish brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with our lost American neighbors. We will spend eternity singing with our Kurdish brothers and sisters in Christ, separated from our lost American neighbors. 
It is the gospel that brings us together. We have work to do in this area. And I'm convinced that that our current situation is a testing grounds for our devotion to the gospel above other things. What keeps us together when it's like this? What, What keeps us together when we disagree about social issues? What keeps us together when we disagree about politics? What keeps us together when we disagree about policies? What keeps us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what will keep us together forever and ever. So here's a review. How now shall we live? Five things. We should live with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. We should live in a constant motivation to worship. We should love this world less and long for the Lord more. We should live with a readiness to endure trouble, tribulation, and persecution. And we should live with a sense of urgency about the global mission of God. And I invite you to add to that list. Like, you write number six, you write number seven, you write number eight. What are those practical lessons, those practical pastoral takeaways from Revelation for you? How else would you answer the question, how now shall we live in light of this study? Well, we've tried to hang the banner over this whole study that says, Revelation is to give us a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, suffering, and persecution unto eternal victory in Christ. We've boiled that down, that statement, we've boiled down to two phrases that we've talked about over and over and over again, awestruck wonder and faithful endurance. Awestruck wonder that empowers faithful endurance. And so I want to spend the rest of our time, before we sing again, we're going to sing a bunch more, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at those kind of things in Revelation. Let's start with awestruck wonder. Turn to chapter 4. So so I'm going to read about four places where we see this awestruck wonder, and then I'm going to read from about four places where we see faithful endurance, and then we're going to sing. We're going to sing, and then we're going to go out, and we're going to live according to this word. Look at Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on a throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's let's sing about that, right? And we will turn over to chapter 7. And start reading with me in verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and Glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Turn over to chapter 11 and start reading with me in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord God, the almighty who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and your wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Turn to chapter 15, the last one. Start reading with me in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding 
harps of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For you, your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. Awestruck wonder. And so we worship him. Awestruck wonder. And so we faithfully endure. Turn back to chapter 2. And let's quickly walk through the letters and hear the call to the seven churches to overcome, to endure, to hold fast, to not give up and not give in. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at verse uh, 10, the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Skip down to verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except he who receives it. Skip over to verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces. As also I have received authority from my Father, and I will give to him the morning star. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Skip down to verse 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take away your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And skip down to verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The constant call of the Lord Jesus to the churches is overcome. Hold fast, endure, persevere, don't give up, and don't give in. Uh, turn over to chapter 12. Start reading in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because of the devil, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. They overcame because of the blood of the Lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their own life even when faced with death. 
We're called to overcome. We're called to faithful endurance. Turn to chapter 14. Start reading in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. These are the ones who follow the lamb everywhere he goes. They are the ones who overcome. And then finally, look at chapter 17, verse 14. I have in the margin of my Bible here, put your anchor down right here. Anchor down right here. Chapter 17, verse 14. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. Because he is the Lord of hosts and the King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. The lamb overcomes. And there are some who are with him who are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. And they overcome as well. We are called in Revelation to be living in awestruck wonder that leads to faithful endurance. I want to close us today before we sing with the invitation the invitation specifically to lost people to find grace through faith in Jesus in light of what we read at the very end of the book. Laura mentioned this a second ago. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Friends, Jesus is coming. Jesus will judge. And the only hope to be saved is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. I invite you to join us as God's people as we worship him in awestruck wonder. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us in these next few moments to live with awestruck wonder that empowers faithful endurance. And as we leave this place, help us to live the rest of our days in awestruck wonder with faithful endurance, that our eyes would be fixed on you, and that we would persevere in the dark days ahead, knowing that the day is coming where there will be no more darkness, only light in your presence. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Thank you for the many who have experienced and are experiencing that salvation. Lord, I pray for those who are not, those who are on the outside. Pray that you will use the reality of Jesus' soon return to bring them to faith, to give them repentance, that they would be saved by your grace. For your glory, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you want to talk to one of us pastors, we're going to be here.